Good morning. It's a pretty reflective song to get us into worship this morning through God's Word, and so I want to invite you, if, you're, if you have your Bible with you, you can turn to Psalm chapter 56. We'll get there in a little bit. Uh, it'll also be on the screen for you this morning if you prefer to read along. Uh, have you ever heard the expression, there are no atheists in foxholes? Yeah, some of you? I'm guessing it's people, the older folks in the room, me, my age, and so on, that have heard it. Some of the kids probably haven't. My kids have never heard it. It's, uh, it's often been attributed to a roving World War II American war correspondent, a guy named Ernie Pyle. In uh, 1942, Ernie was sent overseas by his newspaper with the U.S. Army, and his assignment was to write an article every day on the experience of the common soldier and the challenges facing Allied troops in battle. His writing and his popularity grew over the course of the war to the point where he had a readership of millions of people, and he actually earned a, a coveted Pulitzer Prize for correspondence writing. But his celebrity wasn't limited to his writing, because he became known as he lived and worked as the GI's favorite war correspondent. He was deeply respected and loved by the soldiers and the Marines that he served with, and, and the reason for his good standing among them, other than the fact that he cared about what they experienced, was the fact that he didn't bunk safely offshore on an aircraft carrier or 50 miles behind enemy lines. An unarmed non-combatant, Ernie chose to live with and work among the troops. He even waited ashore on D-Day and later at Iwo Jima with the Marines. And so he displayed this courage to pursue every story in spite of constant mortal danger to himself. And the public was bolstered in their support because of it, because they read firsthand accounts of someone who lived with the troops. And it also affected the morale of the men themselves, whose suffering Ernie knew and experienced firsthand. Interestingly, earlier versions of the same adage, the same expression, no atheists in foxholes, were known to exist in the correspondence of World War I, a generation and a half before. Perhaps Ernie came across this saying in some old press report or a soldier's written account of their experience in the war, and maybe he thought that it resonated with some idea or some level of philosophical truth, and so he embraced it as, a, as his own, and he restated it in his own words as a tagline, a way to capture the attention of a new generation at war. What's more likely is that he embraced the idea after having witnessed thousands of death and near-death experiences, including a few personal close calls. His war experiences were so disturbing to the point where he was actually sent home on leave several times just to recover from what he'd been through and what he'd seen, but he always returned to the men in the field. To what degree Ernie was personally religious, we really don't know. It's not well known, but his assertion that a soldier under extreme duress will seek a higher power when faced with a threat seems to me to suggest some level of faith because logically he could have argued the opposite position. He could have taken the position that many did, that with the widespread violence, destruction, and death going on all around, that that would be enough to cause some to question and even depart their faith. But if Ernie felt that, thought that, he never printed it. Tragically, he died late in the war when the jeep he was riding in was machine gunned by Japanese troops. That's how close he was to the front. Now, what I find most interesting about his story 
is this. It's that fear can motivate faith. Put another way, extreme duress can impact our religious beliefs. That's really what he's saying. Now, the only battles I've ever been in were as a peacemaker in a couple of hundred or so hockey fights over the course of my officiating career, and I wasn't the guy being beaten up. I've been in a small handful of larger than average fires when I was a firefighter, and while fear absolutely entered my mind on a couple of occasions, and I certainly prayed for safety for my own, for the safety of my crew, for the safety of the people that we were trying to help, the fires that we fought, although they were dangerous by nature, they weren't actively trying to kill us. So I'm a little reluctant to say what I'm about to out loud. One, because I'm a Christian, and so I have a particular perspective on God. I have a bias, you might say, where he's concerned. I believe that he exists. I believe that he is intimately concerned about you and me, about our lives. I believe that he cares about us as his cherished ones, and I believe that he loves us so much that he sent his son to die for us. But two, I don't know about you, I have zero uh, desire and experience for a situation where I might be violently obliterated. I've never been so scared, this is what I'm reluctant to say, I've never been so scared for my physical life that I cried out to God in hope of rescue. And I'm reluctant to say that because it sounds a lot like, you know, God give me more patience. You know what God gives you when you need patience? He gives you more trial, right? I don't, I don't, I've never had and I don't want a situation where I am terrified for my life and I'm crying out to God for rescue. I've faced some situations before, some of them before I came to faith in Christ, uh, some sins, where I could have been killed or at least severely injured. You probably have too. But those, those things passed quickly and normal returned. I've witnessed people's worst fear moments when their loved ones were badly injured, sometimes when they were killed. Once I was in the back of a car I was a rookie firefighter. I was in the back of a car providing patient care to a girl whose, truck, whose car had been broadsided by a large truck. She was pinned in the vehicle, and it took us almost an hour to get her out, and her family stood nearby terrified. And I saw that firsthand. Thankfully, she survived. I didn't think she would, but she did. But if you ask any first responder, if they've been at it long enough, they will likely be able to share with you how they have seen some patients and some family members crying out to God, begging for him to save their loved one. Now, I don't know in it, that in every case I saw that, and there were quite a few where I saw people praying or crying out to God. I don't know that they were all Christians or that they were just so desperate for any rescue at all that they just cried out in hope, in fear. I do know that it didn't always end well. It didn't always have the outcome that they hoped. My journey towards faith and the decision to give my life to to Christ had nothing to do with fear. It was, it was made after serious consideration and investigation into the claims of the Bible, and, and I considered Christ, and I sought understanding, and it happened all in the relative calm of everyday life. I wasn't under emotional stress and physical duress. There were no bombs or bullets zinging at me. Now, that's not to say that, that I wouldn't call out to him for rescue if I was in a terrifying situation. I'm pretty sure that I would. 
I'm also pretty sure that I would hope against all odds that he would either spare me or that it would end quickly with somewhere between none to very little suffering. Isn't that what we all want? A peaceful death? Maybe, maybe that makes me sound shallow. I think it makes me human. Now, I don't know about you. I don't know what you'd choose, given the option, but I've never met anybody who said, give me a horrible, painful death for 2,000, please, Alex. I've never met anybody who wanted that. It's either not that funny or there's no Jeopardy fans here. <laughs> Let me ask you this. What is the relationship between fear and faith? Is there one? Or is fear contrary to faith? Last week, Pastor Brent talked about fear, and he told us how the Bible mentions a version of fear not 366 times, one for every day of the year, and including a leap year. That was good. Last week, we learned that, um, that fear is discussed in the Bible more than almost any other concept. Now think back to the soldiers that Ernie Pyle wrote about, who he knew. Now some of them perhaps, historically, it's safe to say with millions of, of men fighting, that some were Christians, perhaps caught up in a war that they didn't want to fight. Perhaps. I've never experienced war. Most of you haven't likely either. Perhaps some of you have. Whatever the case, I hope we never do again. But I can appreciate how a soldier in war could become motivated enough, whether they're Christian or not, fearful and frantic to the point where they call out for rescue, where they begin to desperately bargain with God. Very possibly they hit the point where their training had failed and all of the strategy and tactics and resources in the world wasn't enough and so they became so afraid that all they're left with is a desperate hope that they cling to that God will intervene and act on their behalf. Something like, God, please rescue me. And then the classic, if you do, I will follow Jesus more closely. I'll show mercy to the enemy. Or, God, if you're real, God, if you're real, would you save me from this? Have you ever said something like that to God? Maybe even not even from a position of belief. Maybe from a position of frustration and anger. Maybe more realistically for us, it would sound something like this. Hey, God, if you're there, would you please save my child? The Bible teaches, and I believe that Jesus came to rescue everybody who calls on his name. All those who confess and believe, Scripture tells us, that he will save. And that it's a saving and a rescue from eternal death and separation from him. Meaning we still have to live this life. And we will endure trials. They will come. It's a certainty. And life can be rough. Fear can set in. Anxiety, dysfunction, health and mental health crises. They're real and they're hard. If you've walked with anybody through any of those, you know how hard they are. And they can cause fear to grow, and they can cause faith to wither and fade. And while the loss of hope is certainly possible, it's not supposed to be that way. It's not. Before he became king of Israel, David was a deeply hated and a hunted young man literally running for his life most of the time because the current king, Saul, felt threatened by David and so he pursued David relentlessly with his army with the hopes of capturing and killing him. He put all of the king's business on hold to go after this young man. 
And during one of those desperate times, David wrote this in Psalm 56. He said, oh God, have mercy on me for people are hounding me. My foes attack me all day long. I am constantly hounded by those who slander me and many are boldly attacking me. It's a desperate cry for rescue. And he has good reason to be afraid because everywhere he turns, he encounters a new mortal danger. He encounters another group of people allied with Saul after his own head. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you're scared for yourself or for a loved one. It's probably not an army chasing you. Maybe it's an illness. Maybe it was a terrifying accident. Maybe it was the end of your marriage. As we've already talked about, circumstances can bring fear and they can breed uncertainty, particularly when things are rough. And it can be tempting to wonder how and why God, right? We can say those things. We even become angry with God, possibly. After all, if you're a Christian, then you've loved him. You've prayed. You've gone to church. You've given of your financial resources and your time to invest in his kingdom so that people would know Christ. You've confessed your sin, read your Bible. You're here today. We're good people who love Jesus. So why is this happening to us? That's the sort of desperate thinking that can lead us to feel disappointment with God maybe even hijack our faith and take us somewhere that he doesn't want us to go, away from him. That's the last thing God wants is for us to back up from him because he's certainly not backing up from us. Now, I get that it's easy to say that, particularly when things are pretty smooth in life. We're blessed to live where we live, to have what we have. We don't have anything other than first world problems in North America. But David's next words show us a better response to fear. Listen to verse three. But when I am afraid, when I am afraid, I'll put my trust in you. Notice that he begins with a plea in verse one. But here he's focused on God, not on his circumstances. He doesn't say, I'll have faith once I've wiggled out of this, God. He doesn't say, hey, I'll come back to you only once you've clearly and noticeably delivered me, God. Then I'll trust you again. See, he knew that the key was to trust God while he was in the midst of his fear and his struggle. And so rather than focus on fear, he reaffirms his faith, his faith, David's faith in God's promise in spite of his reality. Listen to verse four. In God, whose word I praise. In God, I trust and am not afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? He knew full well they could kill him. He knew full well that death was a possibility, maybe even a near certainty. But they can't derail his love for God and God's love for him. Put another way, David praised God, trusting not only for what God had future promised David, excuse me, he trusted God for what God had future promised, not only for what David had presently hoped that he might do today, now, here. Matthew Henry is well known for his exposition of the Old and the New Testaments, and he said this concerning these four verses in Psalms. He said, it seems by this and many other Psalms that even in times of the greatest trouble and distress, David never hung up his harp upon the willow trees. He never unstrung it or laid it by, but that when the dangers and fears were greatest, he was still in tune for singing God's praises. Despite feeling alone at times and scared, David never allowed himself to remain in a state of disappointment with God. Yes, he lamented. Yes, 
he struggled, sometimes for long periods of time. Read the Psalms. But he also persevered in faith. He refused to give up on God and his promise. So he wrote Psalm 56 as a song of praise. In his fear, he was singing to God, intended for us to reassure us, to encourage us, to trust in God that he'll be there and he'll see us through whatever comes, whatever we face. And trust is built on as we seek him in prayer. Our trust in God is built on as we seek him in prayer. If you're a Christian, how's your prayer life? Are you placing your trust in him? Are you praising him in spite of your circumstances? If you're not a Christian, you're not left out here because you can call out to him and ask him to reveal himself to you. You don't have to believe he exists to call on his name. I didn't. If you know my faith journey, you know my story, how I came to Christ. That's exactly how it began for me, that I asked God in less than humble and contrite fashion to show up, exclamation point, to prove himself real and trustworthy. Not that I believed in his existence, I didn't. Certainly not expecting that he actually would, but he did. He showed up in my life. He will for you too. Because prayer, whether it's respectful and courteous or even scared and angry, prayer is how we begin our first conversation with God and it's how we maintain our connection to God. So it's a great way to invite him to speak to our thoughts, to shape our thinking, rather than to rely solely on our own ideas and answers. When we, act, when we ask him, when we talk to him, his Holy Spirit guides us, directs us, calms us, and corrects us. If you haven't yet, or you aren't regularly doing so, I would encourage you to begin to pray. Ask him to lead you. He will. He will. Joe Simpson was a, is an English mountaineer, author, motivational speaker. He survived a near-death fall in 1985 while descending a treacherous peak in the Andes Mountains in Peru with a significant trauma to his body and including a, a badly shattered femur, he lay at the bottom of a deep crevasse uh, thinking that there was no hope for him. Dehydrated, alone, he thought it was over. He had no hope of rescue. He was convinced he would die there. He never wavered in his belief that death was the end, that there was no God to call on, and that there was no afterlife to look forward to. Later, he wrote how he had always wondered if given certain circumstances of death, he could be caused to move, to depart from his fear and consider faith. If under certain circumstances, would I call out to God? But he never wavered in his conviction, he didn't. He survived. You might wonder, why would I share the story? Since I'm trying to convince you to, uh, to seek God and to trust him in your trials and the suffering to come. Well, I did some reading about death anxiety while I was preparing for this message. And what I found interesting in the research was this, that there is a relationship between death anxiety and religious belief. And what it shows is this, that committed Christians and committed atheists both share low levels of anxiety about death. Fascinating. Now, the article I read, it didn't really dive into the why that is. But what I found most curious is that moderately religious people and irreligious people both experience significantly higher levels of anxiety concerning death. What's your death anxiety level? 
See, I ask because I think there's a connection between spiritual apathy or being irreligious by practice and anxiety about death. Maybe you know somebody who is currently in the midst of dying or perhaps someone who has recently died. Perhaps you've received your own scary medical diagnosis or you have a loved one that is struggling with an addiction that seems to be taking them over completely, spiraling to the point where you are afraid that death is probable. Maybe it's not death-related at all. Maybe your anxiety and fear is pegging because your marriage is hurting or you're suffering with depression or anxiety. Whatever the situation, here's my point. Our willingness to embrace hardship and to trust God to help us endure actually shows clearly how deep our faith is. Do I trust you in spite of? Now, fully aware that there are only six degrees of separation in any human relationship in the world, I'm going to share a story with you. My close friend, his son, a couple weeks ago, out of nowhere, healthy little boy, experienced a seizure episode that became quite serious, that landed them first in the ER and then transferred to Children's Hospital. The medical staff were able to give medication that stabilized his seizures, but seizures are always a symptom of an underlying problem. And in the search for a cause, what's going on, it led them to a troubling discovery, both a CAT scan and now a series of, well, at least one MRI and another one scheduled for tomorrow morning have, have shown a mass in his brain. Small mass, but it has caused seizures and it's resulted in swelling in his brain. And I wrote this message a month ago I've spoken with Paul several times, including yesterday and then again this morning. And he told me they still don't know what the mass is. But the situation has escalated to the point where he's been vomiting, there's blood, and there's another MRI tomorrow morning, and surgery is Tuesday. Surgery was supposed to be possibly three weeks to four weeks down the road yet. So they're obviously very concerned. And both Paul and his wife, they're committed Christians but they are overwhelmed and scared for their son. They're hurting emotionally and they've suffered physically as well because between managing his health crises and running around to different appointments with different doctors, back and forth to children's hospital, consulting with surgeons, it's impacted their ability to sleep well because they have all this information in their heads now, including the worst case scenarios. And they're scared. And even though they have a strong Christian community around them, their lives have been completely disrupted because this is the toughest battle they've ever faced. And it's a war for the entire family as they begin to rally and fight for this little boy's health. As a dad, there is nothing that I can imagine that would instill as much fear in me as the possibility of losing my child. And so I, I can't say for sure that they have fully embraced the hardship. But I do know they're persevering and they are trusting and they are seeking God and they are hoping in him. And so my hope and prayer has been that they will come through this, that he will be restored to full health and that I'll be able to sit down with them and learn from them because I'm a Christian. I believe in God unquestionably. Doesn't mean I don't have my questions. <laughs> but I believe in him. But I want to sit down with them at the end of this and I want to say, how did you remain faithful? How did you do it? 
When you were your weakest and your most scared, what was it that gave you hope? How did you endure the battle and embrace your circumstances? And, and how did you not give up on God? Because I want to know, can I do that? Is my faith that deep? Since we're talking about hardship, I want to address something else here briefly too, because some believe that if we obey in God, if we love him and follow him, that he'll give us what we want, including money and good health. I got to tell you, clearly, I do not see that in scripture. It's false. Because here's the thing. Believing that means equating my obedience to God with his blessing of me. And while some people believe and teach that, nowhere in God's word do I see a promise of physical health or material and financial prosperity in exchange for something from us. It's true, there are, there are passages like Ephesians 6 and, and Deuteronomy 5 and Deuteronomy 12 and other places where God says that he commands our blessing and he says, if you obey, it will lead to blessing. He, excuse me, he commands our obedience and he says, if you obey, it will lead to blessing. But blessing does not equate to good health, wealth, and happiness. It simply doesn't. What the Bible actually says and teaches is that we will face many trials in life and that we are to consider them all joy. In fact, there are dozens of examples in Scripture where we could, that we could draw on as proof that God is not principally concerned with our wealth and happiness. Take Habakkuk 3. There's a prayer offered there in Habakkuk 3. It says this, Lord, I've heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. He says, repeat them in our day. Do what you have done again today. And in our time, make them known. Then he says this, in wrath or another translation, in your wrath, remember mercy. God, I know who you are. I've read of you. I've seen your deeds. Do them again, God. But when you are angry with us, in your wrath, Lord, remember mercy. The short version of this story is it's Habakkuk's an Old Testament prophet. The Babylonians, they're the local superpower, and they're ruled over by a wicked king. And Judah is where Habakkuk lives and many of the people who follow God. And they are about to be, and Habakkuk knows this, they are about to be overrun by the Babylonians and many of them dragged off into captivity. It doesn't sound like a particularly happy time and it's not. He's scared. Yet, these are God's people. There's children. Now, some of them were disobedient. Yes, we know that. But it's interesting that both the faithful like Habakkuk, and the unfaithful are both swept up into God's judgment and his fury. And so God's people also suffered greatly. So Habakkuk says, in your anger, in your wrath, remember mercy. Interestingly, when we come to the gospels and we read about Jesus, we know that Jesus suffered. He lived in what we would consider to be near poverty. He was rejected by his friends and his family. He was deserted by his followers. He was abandoned by his closest disciples. He was conspired against by the religious leaders. He was condemned for no reason, and he was murdered by the Romans. That's a lot of suffering in a short life. And some people will say, well, yeah, but, but Jesus suffered so that we don't have to. It's true. He did suffer so we don't have to in terms of eternal separation from God. But there are plenty of Christians who, who have suffered in life. Some of them 
dramatically. You know some of them, likely. The Apostle Paul was hounded, persecuted, and ultimately beheaded. Polycarp, another early Christian martyr, he was burned at the stake. John Wycliffe was constantly persecuted. William Tyndale, he was strangled and burned. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was hung. And a few years ago, an American missionary in the Philippines, a man named Martin Burnham, was shot and killed. Wherever there are God's people, there's suffering. Throughout the Bible, and wherever we see Christians today, we see people suffering, but following faithfully in spite of their fear. In Acts chapter 14, the Apostle Paul talks about suffering. You can read along on the screen if you like. It says this, they, the apostles, preached the gospel in Derby, and they won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. Now listen to this. We, he says, must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. It's not a test that if life is hard enough, tough enough, that he lets you in. It's just a reality that we will suffer. The truth is that faith in Christ doesn't guarantee happiness in life. Sometimes it's the opposite. But we can experience joy if we love, as we love, follow, and serve him faithfully. So I'm going to tell you this. Read your Bible. I don't say that like with disdain. If that came across as arrogant, it's, it's not. I need to read my Bible more. We need to read our Bibles because the prosperity gospel isn't true and we shouldn't live like it is. And so what we should do is we should read scripture to see that we're not alone, to know that we're not alone. In our desperate struggles, we need to be reminded of God's past faithfulness and we need to be reminded of his future promises and the hope we have in Christ in eternity for those who believe. Read your Bible. If you're a Christian, this book, it's your story. It's our story. In here is where we find the stories of our grandparents, great-grandparents, great-great-great-great-grandparents. It's where we find truth that we can pass on to our children. As Christians, we possess this story because God has grafted us into his family. And so these narratives are ours. Make it a part of your everyday. Search its truth and, and so, that, so that its power is not lost on this generation so that we pass the truths of scripture on to our kids in this generation. If you're a parent, you don't want to miss the opportunity of passing on a legacy of faith to your kids and grandkids. It's our spiritual legacy. We need to know it, we need to possess it, and we need to pass it on. If you're not a Christian, but you're opening, open to considering who God is, this is your best taste right here. I've told you before, if you haven't heard me say, I started reading the Bible in 1995. I was not a believer. I started reading it because my sister gave it to me. I started reading it because I felt obligated to read it. And I started reading it and I started going, huh, huh, huh. And reading it led me eventually to faith in Christ. It offers a full perspective of who God is, of, of why he sent Jesus and of what he wants for us and through us. And it's available in our language. We can read it. We can know it. We can understand it. So even as you continue to navigate doubt, if you are not yet in a position where you would say Jesus is who he claims to be, even as you continue to navigate doubt and ask questions, read it. Even as you interact with other Christians, 
read it. Sometimes we see incongruencies from what the Bible says and how Christians live, but that gives us a better perspective on how we are supposed to live as people of faith. Even when trials and fears come, read it because there will always be a future trial. There will always be a serious storm in life, even potentially a faith-shaking experience. But when we get into this book, we see that throughout the biblical narrative, that's the case for anybody who ever called on God's name and that he has always been there for his people, always. He was there when they suffered. He was there when they were afraid. Even when they didn't realize he was there and they didn't trust him, he was there because he's God. Take a step toward him today. It will help set up your relationship to endure when life goes crazy. And when life is particularly difficult and challenging, when fear does set in, it's helpful to have godly counsel from a Christian friend. So whether you're a Christian today or you're merely considering Christianity, I want to remind you that good counsel is important in life. And that knowing someone and being known by someone are healthy. It's often been the tool that God has used to provide me with direction so don't be reluctant to do life with somebody, to share your struggles with a trusted friend who loves God, who can give you a perspective outside the crucible of suffering and confusion that you're in, and who can direct you to God through his word and remind you of how much he loves you and that he will be there for you. See, scripture says that helping carry each other's burdens is what we're to do, and it's what enables us when life is difficult. Now, here's what I'd like for us to remember today as we leave. We've talked about persevering in our faith in Jesus in spite of hardship, in spite of suffering, that we can, uh, we will have, or, 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 well, we've either had, will have difficult experiences, but what I want to remind you is this, is that scripture doesn't make light of these things. Scripture is not some canned, feel-good answer to just get over yourself, it'll all be good in the end. It does not make light of these things. What scripture does is that it helps us persevere in our faith in Jesus and it makes these things light. Jesus in Matthew 11, he said this, he said, come to me all you who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. He's not making light of our suffering. He's saying, come to me when you suffer. I'll help you endure. We feel what we feel. We hurt when we hurt, but trusting Christ when we are scared is what makes life bearable. The question is this. The question is this. Will we be fearful, tossed to and fro, or will we remain faithful and set our anchor in him? The worship team is going to join me back up here. As they're on their way, I just want to share one more passage of scripture with you. The Apostle Paul writing to the Corinthian church, encouraging them to struggle in their own difficulties. And he said this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, therefore we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen. We don't focus on our experiences. We don't focus on what's going on around us, but on what is unseen, since, that is, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. We fix our eyes on Christ. Let me pray for you. Father, thanks for today, and um, 
Thank you that you choose to meet us wherever we are. So God, confessing today that we are broken people, some of us suffering and hurting, some of us fearful and afraid, some of us doubting and unbelieving, God, I would ask you to move in hearts and minds today. And as we sing in a few minutes, Lord, would you speak to us through the words? It's possible that some of us are so scared and afraid that we, are, we can't even in good conscience call out to you through the song. So God, would you minister to us as we stand unable to, unwilling to speak? Would you draw near to us when we can't draw near to you, when we refuse to draw near to you? Lord, in this time, would you move? We know people who are afflicted by fear, we ourselves at times among them. Yet, God, you call us to faith and boldness and courage. All in the name of Jesus. So, God, we lift his name high. We praise you. Lord, do what you've promised to do. Remember us. Show mercy to us. Help us be faithful. Lord, I love you, and I thank you for these people. And I praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.